Welcome to Love Unpacked, a podcast based on the book Love Unpacked. I'm your host, Andy Franklin. Join me on a journey to unpack our stories, confront our past, and find our way to unconditional love. Hello again. Welcome back. I guess I'm kind of welcoming myself back here a little bit. Um, Yeah, you know what? It's so funny. I was having a conversation with my friend Amanda a few weeks ago. Uh, Shout out to Amanda. She's a fuck it mothering. She does this great coaching for moms, women, but you know, really for moms too. Um, She's at FCK it mothering. So definitely go check her out. But Her and I were having this conversation about consistency and this issue that we both share with consistency. And I find it so funny that here I am back on this podcast after, gosh, I think like a whole month off. Uh, Really quick, I just want to say sorry. Sorry for the lack of consistency. It's been interesting going through my book again. I really enjoyed it. And also when I got to this chapter that we're going to do today... I I guess it it kind of it reopened some wounds because I realized wow we are about to step into the next two chapters are about these really really huge losses that Derek and I have had in the last 7 years and I think because his grandma recently passed away and she was very important in his life I think I just wasn't ready I wasn't ready to have to also relive these two really sad and traumatic events. So thank you for bearing with me. I feel good now. I feel like I gave myself the space I really needed to just be in that and also to remind myself that, look at (laughs) the unpack is never done. It's never, ever done. And there will be times where things come up and you have to work through them again. And that's okay. You have to honor the process. You have to honor yourself and your, where you are. So Before we begin, I do want to just throw out a real quick trigger warning. This chapter does talk about death, and it also talks about postpartum depression. So if either of those are a trigger for you, please skip. Please take care of yourself. Okay, we've talked about body image. We've talked about trauma. We've talked about rejection, so on and so forth. And today, we are going to be talking about grief. Chapter 11. Grief. Down one wolf. You care so much, you feel as though you will bleed to death with the pain of it. J.K. Rowling, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. I realized I'd hit rock bottom as I was sitting on my parents' couch at 5.30 p.m. on a Friday night, watching cartoons with my baby in my lap, an Uncrustable in my left hand, and a beer in my right Derek was having his annual Christmas poker night at our house, and I wasn't in the mood to entertain a bunch of drunk men while breastfeeding a five-month-old baby and tending to a toddler. So I gathered up the gang and declared we'd spend the evening at the comfort of my parents' home instead. As I headed east on the freeway, I heard a quiet voice that seemed to be visiting me a lot recently. What if I just veered a little more to the left in this carpool lane? Would I be able to angle it just right so that the kids still lived? Would my children, my husband, the world be better off without me? When I got to my parents' house, they weren't home, and the silence was deafening. 
Let's be real. It wasn't actually silent because I had a two-year-old and a five-month-old baby with me. But the house itself felt cold and uninviting. The door didn't creak. The refrigerator didn't hum. It was as if I was stranded in a padded white room with two screaming children and no background noise to escape into. I felt lonely and homesick and terrified to be the only adult in the entire house. It's not that I didn't trust myself. It was just that I didn't know how much more my heart could take on its own. So I did what any normal woman on the verge of a mental breakdown would do. I hopped back in the car with my kids and drove to Sonic for a fancy-ass milkshake. It had rich, creamy peanut butter and crunchy Oreo bits, fluffy whipped topping and a maraschino cherry on top smashed under a plastic lid and a styrofoam cup. I dove into that milkshake like a pastor dives into scripture. In that magical moment, it was more divine than any Easter Sunday service. It brought me to the yard, and I looked over at McDonald's across the street like, damn right, it's better than yours. My children may very well have been plotting to destroy the world in the back seat, but all I could hear was the slithering of that peanut butter Oreo cookie milkshake suctioning out of the straw and sliding down my throat. Postpartum depression frequently has this effect on a person, and I was buried in the trenches, despite never watching myself fall. All I knew for sure was I needed that milkshake like a death row inmate needs a porterhouse steak. I made my way back to my parents' home and found them present but exhausted. My dad, Carl, had already made his way upstairs to turn in for the night. Before 6 p.m., because this is what old people do and apparently the future I have to look forward to. And my mom was fiddling around organizing stacks of mail on the kitchen counter. So I let Disney Junior babysit my two-year-old while I grabbed a grape jelly Uncrustable and a beer and sat down to breastfeed my baby with hopes of coaxing him to a milk-induced sleep coma. As I curled up on the worn brown recliner, I was overcome with a sense of longing, and tears began trickling down my cheek. I grabbed my phone and wrote in the notes, I realized I'd hit rock bottom as I was sitting on my parents' couch at 5.30 p.m. on a Friday night, watching cartoons with a baby in my lap, an Uncrustable in my left hand, and a beer in my right. There was nothing particularly horrendous about this moment. I wasn't suicidal, financially struggling, getting divorced, or any of those sorts of things you generally associate with someone hitting the bottom of their emotional barrel. There was a beautiful, perfect baby boy fast asleep on my lap, and an adorable, curly-haired, blue-eyed boy sitting calmly on the couch across from me, watching Mickey Mouse Clubhouse with wonder. I could have called out to my mom, and she would have dropped everything she was doing to sit and listen and cry with me. Instead, I let my tears fall in silence as yearning filled in my chest and suffocated my heart. I ached for the woman I once was, so optimistic and full of life. I'd always relied on her to pull me out of times like this with her glass-half-full mindset, but she apparently booked a one-way ticket out of here and I feared she may never return. I yearned for passion. It used to pour out of me like hot molten lava, devouring anything and everything in its path. But now, the only time I ever felt any sort of enthusiasm was when I was mouth-deep into a sonic milkshake, a piece of cake, a bottle of wine, a trough of macaroni and cheese. 
I itched for inner peace, for contentment, for joy. But mostly, I craved my husband. I missed him with my whole being. Not because he was playing poker at our home 45 minutes away, but because he'd gone missing nine months before that night, on March 6, 2015, when his lifelong best friend and brother died suddenly, immediately, unimaginably, in a motorcycle accident. Brian was the living embodiment of Carpe Diem. I'll never forget the first time Derek brought me over to Brian's for a get-together. We showed up on time, which meant we were actually an hour early because my husband believes in punctuality, unlike most people who attend house parties. We were greeted at the door by a brindle pit bull named Aries, the sweet canine alpha of the home who loved a good scratch behind the ear. There wasn't a soul in sight, and Derek ushered me to make myself comfortable while he went room to room looking for Brian. I scanned the shabby couches and couldn't help but feel like they were an indication of how much traction and love this place housed. Surely this was the hub, the home base for all of their friends and family with couches so well broken in as these. From outside, I heard a robust voice shout, Durder! And moments later, a stocky man in a crisp redskins hat and a black tap-out tee came strutting in the room. The entire place lit up when Brian stepped through the door, in the sort of way that Christmas joy fills the air when Santa shows up in a movie. His look suggested he wasn't one to be trifled with, but his gleaming eyes and full cheeks immediately made me feel like I was home. After introducing himself and pulling me in for a hug, Brian disappeared into his bedroom and came back out a moment later with some pot. You want to smoke, Andy? I'd smoked a few times before with friends, but had yet to engage in it with Derek. But I felt safe and comfortable with Brian. So without hesitation, I grabbed the pipe and took a hit. It wasn't until after the smoke left my lungs that Brian declared, we need to go make a Stater Brothers run, guys. Let's go. Derek was the only one who hadn't just smoked. So we hopped in his truck and made our way down the street to do a beer run. By the time we parked, I was high. So freaking high. I wasn't a regular partaker, and marijuana always seemed to hit me harder than other people. It probably had to do with the fact that I used to starve myself back then to be skinny, but I digress. I was super high, and since I was in foreign territory, aka the supermarket, in front of a bunch of strangers, I got quiet. I was like a 21-year-old mime following two dudes around and using hand gestures to communicate. I trailed closely behind the two best friends as they caught up on life and howled over inside jokes. I was a silent, high observer to the undeniable bond they shared. After what felt like a full 24 hours in the beer aisle, we finally left the store and Brian let out a full belly laugh that I'd later learn was his signature. Andy, are you okay? You haven't said a damn word. It was love at first high. Brian welcomed me into his world, and I quickly became family. Plus, once you were Brian's family, you claimed a spot in his wolf pack. He'd fiercely protect you, love you, support you, and tell you off if you needed to get pegged down a notch. I immediately understood why Derek would follow him into a coffin-filled dirt ditch without a second thought if Brian asked. 
He was captivating, warm, and honest, and man, he loved Derek fiercely. The two of them shared a rare kind of bond that could only be born out of two small children who relied on one another for comfort, friendship, and survival. Their connection to one another was irrevocable. They talked on the phone daily, and even as time would pass between seeing one another because of life and responsibilities, once they were in the same room again, it was as if they had never been apart. It was literally as if they were connected by some force, and people could feel it when they walked into a space together. Crowds would clear poetically when Derek showed up, because they knew his path was straight to Brian, and nobody dared stand in the way. For the next six years, I'd show up to Brian's with Derek and team up with his wife Kira in boys versus girls beer pong matches. We'd drink tequila rose shots and play poker until the sun came up. The music was loud. The house was always full of friends who had become family. And Brian stood at the center of it all, filling the air with Christmas-like magic and making everyone feel more at home than they sometimes felt in their own spaces. Of course, the older we all got, the more life began to shift, making our partying less and our responsibilities more. Still, no matter how much time passed between seeing each other, we always picked up right where we left off formally. As for Derek and Brian, the two of them never missed a beat no matter how much physical space was between them. Every morning after Brian grabbed a hot coffee and an egg McMuffin from McDonald's, he'd call Derek and they'd shoot the shit on the way into work. The only thing that could ever keep the two of them apart, it seemed, was death. But even death was no match for the two wolves. The night Brian died, Derek and I went on a date to this delicious Italian restaurant in Fullerton called Roman Cucina. I was just shy of 20 weeks pregnant with our second son, so no wine for me, but we feasted on crispy bruschetta and the best bolognese either of us has ever had to date. We laughed and marveled at one another. Our eyes glistened in the dimly lit candlelight as our hands touched, intoxicated from love. We chatted about the following day and his plans to go get a tattoo consultation with Brian. They hadn't seen each other in a while, and I knew how time evaporated when they were together, so I was encouraging him to stay as long as he pleased. Just be home by dinner. Spend the whole day together. It's been a while, and I know you love being with him and hanging out. We boxed up the rest of the bolognese and made our way home to our oldest son, Declan, who was fast asleep on his auntie's lap when we walked through the door. I scooped up Declan and hugged my sister goodnight before leading her out and heading down the hallway toward the toddler bed we'd set up for little man on the side of our bed. Once he was settled in, I brushed my teeth and washed my face before crawling into bed with my husband. We made love and fell into slumber with happy bellies and full hearts after a much-needed perfect date night. About two hours later, I felt a jolt that woke me in a startle. I'll never know why he answered that late night call. Derek was a chronic let-it-go-to-voicemail-if-it's-after-9pm kind of guy. I'll never know why, but he picked up and heard his dad Dennis frantic on the other line. I lifted my head from the pillow and saw Derek standing grimly over the bed. What? Who? Brian. Son, Brian is dead. 
I could hear the voice on the other line say the word dead, but I'd no idea who they were talking about. And in my sleepy state, I thought he was talking to Brian. I assumed someone older had passed like a grandparent or something. But Derek's face was ghostly. Who died, babe? What's going on? Derek stood like a petrified tree for a long pause before collapsing his body onto the bed. Then, a tone so shrill and deep at the same time escaped from him as he wailed. Brian, he's dead. The howling. Deep, harrowing howling. His body was practically convulsing as he cried a howl, unlike anything I've ever heard from a human being before. Brian is dead. I couldn't process this information. Brian was our pack leader. He was Derek's pack leader. He couldn't be dead. I immediately felt overcome with a primal need to somehow shield my husband from his searing pain. He'd never experienced a huge death in his life. All of his grandparents still live and breathe as I type this, and death wasn't something he was accustomed to encountering. Not like I was. I always knew his first big one would be hard, but I never could have expected that it would be the most significant person in his entire life. What kind of backward god did we have that would let Brian die the night before he was supposed to see Derek? He planned to ask him to be the godfather to our unborn son. There was so much left to experience with him. To say to him. Brian died immediately on impact. He was riding his Harley and made a right-hand turn on a red light, not realizing that a GMC Yukon was making a left from across the way at that exact moment. His body was thrown several feet away, and he laid in the road with a sheet over him for hours while the police investigated the scene and his wife, Kira, stood three feet away, frozen in disbelief. They wouldn't let her see his body, because his chest was so caved in that they felt it would traumatize her. He was only 29 years old. The day Brian's soul went to heaven, a piece of my husband's flew away with him. I felt it leave his body that night, as he curled up in the fetal position and howled. Derek got out of bed the next morning and hopped in the shower. About ten minutes later, I watched him pull some boxer briefs out of his drawer and comb through his closet for a button-up shirt. He remained silent as he laced one shoe after the other, then kissed me goodbye and left for a morning meeting as if nothing had happened. I always feared that when he experienced death, he'd shut me out. And admittedly, I began to panic. It was such a delicate time. And my heart was hurting too. My heart ached for both myself, the loss of my dear friend, and for my husband who had just lost his brother. The day the wolf died, Derek disappeared into himself. We stopped living and started surviving. Four months later, as we drove to the hospital and I made noises so deep they're only found in exorcisms and active labor, we clutched hands and wept to flashlight by Jesse J, knowing that the day had come when Brian's godson would be born into a world without him in it. New life was supposed to heal us, but it didn't. Instead, we were crushed under the responsibility of caring for two small children.
One had already felt so overwhelming, and adding a second to the mix while mourning an unthinkable tragedy like Brian's death was soul-crushing. It was also magical. Bennett Lee Bryan somehow lived up to his namesake without any help from his blessed but closet-depressed parents. He had a smile that took up his entire face, making it impossible not to grin along with him. His little thigh rolls were the ones I'd always dreamed up in my mind that my first son, who didn't reach the 5% until he was two, never possessed. I wish I could have bottled up his goodness and drunk it like a poly potion, soaking up his joy and basking in the warmth of content. Instead, we survived. Derek would get home from work and head straight out to his garage, where he'd fiddle with the shadow box memorial he custom-made in Brian's memory, or rearrange his tools. I'd put cartoons on and pray to God that Declan wouldn't realize Daddy was home, lest he threw a tantrum over not being able to play with Daddy. We still smiled and kissed and talked and had sex every night as if life were beautiful. I'd even post gorgeous photos of my children on social media in perfect lighting with a sappy caption about how hashtag blessed I was. We were the damn American dream, but we desperately needed therapy, medication, and healing. The truth is that Derek and I were both slowly dying inside. We'd creep around one another as if all the flooring in our home was broken glass. We didn't mean to, but we'd both pulled away from one another as a survival tactic. Shields up. All the way up. I chopped off all of my hair, which is probably the most significant SOS of women everywhere. Then I dyed it purple. And when that high wore off, I dyed it pink. I began drinking coffee from 4.30 a.m. until 4.30 p.m. when I'd switched to Pinot Noir. I ate leftover chicken nuggets and an excessive amount of El Pollo Loco chicken avocado salads with a side of macaroni and cheese and maybe a churro. Yes, add the churro. I was frantically looking for something, anything, to fill the void in my soul, but nothing ever seemed to last. I couldn't admit to myself that my marriage was unraveling because we hadn't touched a single thread. It didn't make sense to me that we could be so in love and so distant from one another at the same time. We'd always dealt with tragedy together in the past, and it always brought us closer, stronger. But while Derek was trying to be strong for me and I was attempting to be brave for him, we forgot that there was an us to protect. And as I sat there on my parents' couch at 5.30 p.m. on a Friday night, watching cartoons with a baby in my lap, an Uncrustable in my left hand, and a beer in my right, I realized that my heart was reaching for my marriage in desperation. We couldn't go on another minute like this. I felt it in the depth of my stomach, and I knew it wasn't just the milkshake rumbling around in there. Something had to change, and it had to start with me, right then and right there. Unpacking Grief How do you convince a man to heal his heart? You inception his ass. Derek and I refer to inceptioning someone as planting ideas or thoughts into their mind and convincing them it was theirs all along. You know, like the mega hit starring everyone's favorite Bachelor Leo. This concept of inception is particularly useful when you really want pizza or you need your spouse to think they were the one to pick the movie that night. 
If you've never seen the movie Inception, here's the rundown. Leonardo DiCaprio plays a thief named Dominic Cobb who steals secrets from big, important people using a dream-sharing technology called, you guessed it, Inception. He and his team get tasked to do the impossible and plants an idea into someone's mind using Inception. And his team faces many obstacles along the way, as Cobb's deceased wife, Mal, played by the ever-stunning Marion Cotillard, keeps showing up in the dreams and trying to bring Cobb home to her. In the case of Derek, he was my Cobb and Brian was his Mal. Everywhere Derek went, it seemed, Brian would follow. There's a reoccurring line in the movie where Mal whispers to Cobb, You're waiting for a train, a train that will take you far away. You know where you hope this train will take you, but you don't know for sure. Yet it doesn't matter, because we'll be together. Derek was in the station, waiting. He had his bags packed and a single-rider one-way ticket to who knows where. Grief has a way of entrancing a person. Death anchors us to the grave and whispers sweet nothings into our ears, often leaving those of us left behind wishing we could sleep forever alongside the ones we've lost. For the first time in Derek's life, he was considering the idea that maybe life wasn't worth sticking around for if it meant he had to live life without Brian. And though it would be another year before he admitted it to me, I knew at the time that I was losing the battle to keep my husband off the train. I needed to inception him before the train came. But how? No amount of conversation or motivational speaking or bargaining would keep him from boarding. His heartache was blinding him to the beauty around and only highlighting the emptiness. My attempts to pry his heart open and pluck out the dying pieces like a game of operation only pushed him farther away. I was losing him to his grief, and I didn't know how to help him heal. So instead, I did what I could to make everything else in his life feel manageable, so he'd have fewer things to distract him from mending his ruptured heart. I stopped complaining every time I had a hard day with the kids, which wasn't easy because I loved to bitch and moan about how rough my day was with the kids. I started making shower time and clothes other than yoga pants a priority, and some days I wouldn't get ready for my day until right before he walked in the door, but I did it. I smiled more. I'd almost forgotten that a smile was once my face's default expression. I greeted him at the door with a kiss rather than waiting for him to come to me. I started cooking again. I even kept up with the housework rather than letting the laundry and toys pile high like Mount Everest. And most profoundly, I stopped relying on him to make every single life decision for me, from whether or not we needed a plumber for a clog to what I should eat for lunch. Surprisingly, as I worked overtime to fill the cracks in my husband's heart, I was unknowingly filling the spaces in my own as well. It had never occurred to me how deeply I relied on Derek for everything in my life. I expected him to make me happy, work full-time, play with our kids, make decisions for me, and not only man the fort, but captain my life as well. Oh, and I also wanted to be romanced and wooed and aroused. I'll keep your children alive and put dinner on the table and keep your house partially clean 15% of the time and you do everything else, okay? His depression forced me to acknowledge my codependency, 
Because for the first time in our entire relationship, he didn't have the emotional capacity to carry my purse full of pain. This didn't sit well with me at first. I mean, wasn't it his job to carry my purse? Isn't that what partners are for? Sex, purse carrying, and killing all the spiders forever and ever, amen? Honestly, I felt betrayed and left behind. As if I was at the station with him, but in a completely different terminal waiting for an entirely different train. It felt like every time I found him and dropped my luggage down next to him, he'd excuse himself to the bathroom and never return. Then I'd go searching again and see him at a different terminal, and the cycle would continue. I was never one to enjoy being alone, and suddenly I was alone all of the time, even with my husband physically sitting right next to me. I was forced to become my own best friend because the one I'd been relying on for years was nowhere to be found. Entering into a friendship with myself didn't materialize easily. I spent the majority of my life talking major crap about the girl in the mirror, and now I thought she'd magically want to be my friend? After all the bullying I'd done? Come on now, seriously? You tell me I'm ugly almost every day. I don't want to hang out with you any more than I have to. Me and myself had little to no faith in one another. We were like long-lost sisters reuniting for the first time after years of separation, pain, and neglect. There was so much to say, and even more to heal, but both of us were guarded and uncomfortable. We were ready to return to estrangement, only we couldn't. We didn't have that luxury anymore. Nobody was there to fill the gap between us. We were living on a prayer, alone on an island, forced to work together to find a way back to civilization. A way back to life. Our start was painfully awkward. A blind date of sorts. What's our favorite color? What do we want to eat right now? Where should we take the family this weekend? While Derek healed, I was becoming the woman I was always meant to be. I was blooming into a partner instead of a codependent wife and learning to let go of the idea that I could somehow fix or heal my husband with the flick of a wrist. I stopped putting the responsibility for his happiness on my shoulders and instead did what I could to bring joy into my own world in hopes it would pour out into our home and flourish at his feet. One morning, I woke up and crept to the bathroom to get ready for my day like usual. But when I looked in the mirror, I was floored. I thought to myself, there's someone here under the thin layer of skin and veins and blood and muscle and cartilage. Like a butterfly's metamorphosis, she's stirring. She's awakening. I knew right then and there I could keep erasing myself, refusing to speak up or out about my wants and needs, or I could step into the woman I was and fill the space I occupied. I knew if I stayed small, if I continued to shrink myself, nobody wins. When you stay small in your marriage, nobody wins. This was my chance to expand. I was like one of those little dinosaur-shaped sponges, living my life on dry land. Nobody told me I'd grow if I soaked in a bit of water. I'd been living my entire life thinking I was always meant to be tiny in stature, when actually, 
I'd been designed to be massive. It was there within me all along. I just needed to add water. I needed to absorb rather than shrivel. Soak instead of dry. I needed to grow. Grow into me. Into the woman I was always meant to be. Learning about myself was fascinating. It turned out I actually had a lot of good ideas all on my own. I discovered new restaurants and new menu items from older ones. Derek practically went into cardiac arrest one morning when I ordered the seasonal pancakes from our local diner instead of my usual egg white, spinach, feta, tomato omelet with homestyle potatoes and wheat toast. The heart attack may also have been from the heap of gravy on his biscuits, but I digress. I took our family on adventures without even consulting my husband sometimes. I'd pile everyone in the car and take off without a word about where or what we were doing. Sometimes I wouldn't even decide myself until we were on the road. I kept up to date with what was going on in the world. That way I'd have more to talk to Derek about than Disney Junior or which kid took the biggest poop that day. Suddenly I had in-depth opinions on things like gun control, the dangers of social media, and which celebrities were offering a positive environment for our youths. I was becoming, in every sense of the word. And as each little pore filled up with the water and nourishment I was feeding it, I grew like a lotus emerging from a murky river water to reveal her brilliantly unscathed petals. I no longer needed my husband to solve all the world's problems for me. I didn't need him to make the weekend plans or choose dinner or take out the trash. Once I grabbed my heavy purse off the floor where he dropped it and draped it over my own shoulder, I realized I was ready to love Derek not for holding my purse, but for being who he was, which is precisely the kind of love someone needs when going through something as life-altering as losing a best friend. Grief had sent a flood to wash us out, and now we were slowly blooming again. It was separately at first. I used to think grief needed a soundboard to bounce off, but that isn't the case for everyone. Derek didn't need me to pry him open and force his feelings out. He needed me to be a complete person so that he could be a broken one for a while. Slowly, he began to brighten. I'm sure he did plenty of internal work on his heart during this time, and I don't take credit for how he was able to finally learn to live with the death of his best friend. However, I did inception his ass, so I get partial credit. Now that I think about it, maybe he was the one doing the inceptioning all along. Perhaps his sorrow was a clever ploy to get me to stop acting like a selfish asshole all of the time. On our wedding day, Brian stood up for his best man speech and told 120 of our friends and family gathered to celebrate our love about the time Derek got new skates when they were kids. Brian didn't have skates, so Derek offered to share. He gave Brian a single skate, one from the pair. That way, they could both skate, even if only one-footed. Brian shared this story to illustrate what a wonderful, kind, loving person is. And the exact moment he was saying that to Derek, Derek was thinking to himself that he wasn't kind or loving or wonderful. 
He just never wanted to be without Brian. He couldn't imagine leaving him behind. Brian's death has had a profound impact on our lives in this household. Brian took the skate to heaven, and it'll always live there with him, which means a part of my husband will forever glide there beside him too. But that piece was Brian's to begin with. And I think when we accept death as a part of someone's soul, then we more readily accept when a piece of that soul goes missing when someone is suddenly ripped away from us the way Brian was. Grief, both mine and Derek's, taught me that I was capable of stepping up as a pack leader too. The great news about rock bottom is there's only one way left to go. And thanks to Brian and his legacy, I know Carpe Diem is the only way to live. Thank you so much for listening to the Love Unpacked podcast. I'm your host, Andy Franklin. And you can find me on Instagram at Andy M. Franklin and at love underscore unpacked. And if you're interested in purchasing the book, it is sold on Amazon, IndieBound, and Barnes & Noble.